So good morning, listeners, and welcome to Come and See Inspirations. And this, the 30th of January, it's the fourth Sunday in Ordinary Time. My name is John Keeley, and I'd welcome you to our podcast again today. But also uh, joining me to help me present the podcast, Shane Ambrose. Good morning to you, Shane. Good morning, John. How are we keeping? Very good. Thanks a lot for joining me, Shane. And I know you'll join me in welcoming those listeners who are home and abroad, those who are housebound, those who are lonely, those who are struggling, and those faithful listeners who keep us in prayer each week. Thank you indeed for your support, and thanks for joining us each week. Just to remind listeners again, our programme does include interviews on faith topics, inspirational music, and reflecting on various faith topics. Uh, we also reflect on the Sunday Gospel. And our podcast can be heard and come and see inspirations.buzzbread.com. Previous uh, podcasts can be heard back on sacredspace102.blogspot.com and also on Spotify and iTunes and also on Facebook at Come and See Inspirations. So really, if you just Google Come and See Inspirations, you'll find us there. We can be contacted and that's on email, which is comeandseeinspirations at gmail.com. That's comeandseeinspirations at gmail.com. 87 This is a text number. That's 87 Outside of Ireland, 0035387. And as we've often mentioned before, we would welcome any listeners who might want to join us, who might want to make suggestions to us in terms of maybe topics to discuss, people to speak with, or even some music to play please do so by emailing us on comeandseeinspirations at gmail.com. Now, at this point of the program, as uh, podcast as usual, we'll invite Shane to share some saints for the week and maybe add a few bits and pieces around the Catholic Church. Thanks, Shane. Thanks, John. So, as you said, today is the fourth Sunday in Ordinary Time. Um, the year is moving on, and we're almost at, we're at the end of January and into February next week, folks. So for those of us praying the Psalter, we're on week four. And it's the fourth week in ordinary time. Monday, the 31st of January, is the feast day of St. John Bosco, uh, associated, of course, as the founder of the Salesians and also uh, the the, the, uh, Salesian sisters or the daughters of Mary Help a Christian. Um, He's a son, of course, of Turin. He was, um, his father died when he was two. His mother was Margaret, Mama Margaret, as she's known. And he, as soon as he was on old enough to do jobs, Don Bosco uh, was working to support his family, very much associated actually with tricks and carnivals and fairs, which he didn't use in later life when he was doing catechesis with children to keep them entertained while doing the catechesis. Um, he was ordained in 1841. He was a teacher and um, he eventually founded the Salesians of Don Bosco in 1859 priest who work with and educate boys under the protection of Our Lady Help of Christians and St. Francis de Sales. So that's where they get their names, Salesians. Um, so, of course, in Limerick, of course, very much associated with Copswood School, the, the Agricultural College in, in Palace Henry. And, of course, the sisters, um, the Salesian sisters had their school those a number of years ago in Fernbank in, in Limerick City. And, of course, uh, now their ministry is much more diverse and around the, the diocese as well. So that's Don Bosco. He died in 1888. He's the patron saint of youth and of Catholic publishers. Friday or Tuesday, the 1st of February, of course, is the Feast of St. Bridget, one of the co-patrons of Ireland, patron saints of Ireland. And of course, from next year, we're getting a public holiday 
in honour of St. Bridget. Now, as far as I know, it won't actually fall on the 1st of February. It will fall on the first Monday of the month of February. But it's nice to get a day off. And it is nice that the state has acknowledged a female Irish saint. I thought that was a nice touch. Obviously, St. Bridget very much associated with Kildare. Um, uh, daughter of a pagan, a pagan king of Leinster and a, 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 a Christian slave who was his wife. Um, she, her mother was sold and her mother, Bridget rendered her mother till she was old enough to serve uh, her own father. She grew up, and we've got lots of stories about Bridget in terms of very much associated with things to do with dairy and, of course, the great tradition of the St. Bridget's Day process, which she wove while uh, trying to convert a person on their deathbed to, uh, to, to Christianity. Um, obviously, very much so associated with the foundation of a monastery in Kildare, Kildare Town, uh, a double monastery. So it was a monastery for both men and for women. And it started, and tradition holds that she found her monastery around 468 AD. And she was a great traveler. Uh, so she's a patron of travelers and sailors and, and very much uh, associated with that. And by tradition, the reason we celebrate her feast day on the 1st of February is by tradition, that is the day of her death. Um, she is, her relics, some of her relics are in uh, Down Patrick, uh, in the same grave with St. Patrick and St. Columba of Iona. And her patronage is the patron saint of blacksmiths, chicken farmers, dairy maids, uh, midwives, milkmaids, nuns, poultry farmers, sailors, scholars, and travelers. So that's St. Bridget's feast day, of course, we celebrate on the 1st of February. 2nd of February, of course, is the feast day of the presentation of the Lord. One of the high points of the Christian calendar, uh, very much uh, focusing on the tradition of Jesus being fulfilling the Judaic law where his parents took him to the temple to be presented after 40 days. In the old calendar, it used to mark the end of the Christmas season. And of course, also very much associated with Candlemas, the blessing of candles to be used in the church and also for domestic use uh, throughout the throughout the year. It's a great tradition, and I particularly um, I think for many families, the lighting of a, a blessed candle for intentions or for prayers is a lovely tradition that we still have in many homes in the present time. This the presentation also marks, of course, the World Day of Prayer for Consecrated Life, which was established by Pope John Paul II and is a day set aside for prayer and acknowledgement of the work of all consecrated religious. So it's an important day to pray for religious and pray in particular for vocations to the religious life. Thursday, the 3rd of February, of course, is the feast day of St. Blaise, Bishop and Martyr. And St. Blaise, of course, very much associated with the blessing of the throats. St. Blaise uh, was said to have cured a person from choking uh, by uh, uh, blessing their throats using the candles from Candlemas as a sacramental and invoking God's protection over them. Um, he's very much thrown into, uh, or he's very much associated with healing, very much a saint for healing. The problem, of course, is um, he's generally been used as to protect for throats. So we all get our throats blessed with St. Blaise on the 3rd of February, and then we forget about him until the, for the rest of the year. So yeah. it's something to think about, right? He was known as one of the 14 holy helpers, uh, so that was 14 saints, including Barbara, Christopher, Catherine of Alexandria, Dennis of Paris, uh, George and Giles, Margaret of Antioch, 
who are saints in the Middle Ages, very much invoked for protection against illness and particularly the plague. Um, so it's an interesting, it's an interesting bunch. So St. Blaise was included in that list. So we celebrate his feast day on the 3rd of, uh, the 3rd of February. Uh, now, uh, just in case people are wondering, yes, ideally the blessing of St. Blaise should be imposed by um, your parish priest or a priest. It doesn't have to be, mind you. It's one of those blessings which any lay person, any person can invoke on another, you know, as true faith. Um, you know, and invoking God's blessing to the intercession of St. Blaise. But by tradition, it would normally be done by the priest. Uh, to the intercession of Blaise, Bishop and Martyr, and you'd be protected from all infirmities of the throat in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that's just a nice one. Uh, just if, if, if people, um, you know, wanted to get it on, on, on his feast day. Friday the 4th, first Friday for those observing the devotion, is the first Friday of February. It's the feast day of St. Gilbert of Simpringham. He's an English saint, uh, so he didn't really want to become a soldier like his father wanted, so he was sent packed off to Paris to study. He returned to England and opened the school for the poor in his local parish. And then when his father died, he redistributed his, poor, his property and founded two monasteries, an Augustinian monastery and a Benedictine monastery and provided for the poor. He later set up a group of an order of nuns known as the Gilbertines, and they were the only um, congregation operating under a rule designed by an Englishman. But the congregation was suppressed during the Reformation by King Henry VIII. Uh, he died in uh, 1189 of natural causes. And uh, so that's St. Gilbert, who we remember on the 4th of February. 5th of February, of course, for those keeping the, observ keeping the observance, is the first Saturday. This year, it is the feast day of St. Agatha, Virgin and Martyr. She was a martyr for the free faith at Catonia in Sicily in the 3rd century. She's the patron saint of bell founders. Now, I haven't been able to figure out what the connection there is with her. The other thing that Agatha is very much um, associated with, and this is kind of a breakfast warning, She's the patron saint of the sufferers from breast cancer and from rape victims because those were some of the elements involved in her martyrdom. Uh, I won't go into the gory details. They're fairly gruesome, but just uh, she, if you're, it's, she's an interesting saint and her iconography is rather unusual in terms of she has a plate and uh, on it is generally um, her breasts because they were chopped off as part of her martyrdom. So uh, it's an interesting one. So that's why she is the patron saint of those that suffer from breast cancer. Uh, to seek her intercession uh, in their difficulties um, as they cope with the illness. So that's what we have, John, in terms of liturgical odds and ends on the calendar. Now, the Pope was busy during the week. We have a new doctor of the church. Now, we brought this up a couple of times. And John says to me, what the hell is a doctor of the church? Now, it's not a medical doctor, let's be clear. The Catholic Church has 37 doctors of the church, 38 actually, as of last week. Uh, it's a 30, no, 37, sorry. 37 doctors of the church. Now, doctor, it's coming from the word Latin doctor, which means teacher. So these are saints uh, recognized as making a significant contribution to the theology or doctrine, to their research, study, or writings. Now, doctors of the church include the great Greek doctors such as, uh, I've, lost, I've lost my, to Chrysanthemum, John Chrysostom, and Basil the Great. Um, but we also have St. Ambrose, St. Augustine, St. Jerome, St. Thomas Aquinas. 
Um, now, in terms of ladies, there isn't too many female doctors of the church, but Teresa of Avillam, Patron of Siena, Therese of Lisieux, Hildegard of Bingham are all uh, female doctors of the church. So there are 37 doctors, 28 from the West, 9 from the East, 4 women, 19 bishops, one, there are 12 priests, 1 deacon, there's 27 from Europe, 3 from Africa, and 7 from Asia, and the majority of them actually lived in the 4th century. Um, now, the interesting thing is why I'm mentioning it is that Pope Francis has declared St. Irenaeus of Lyon as a doctor of the church, and particularly a doctor of unity. Busy man, Irenaeus, who's involved in combating a lot of heresies, including Arianism. He also was involved with the disputes around the setting of the date of Easter. Uh, he also was, uh, he, he's written quite a lot, which still has come down to us to the present day. He's the first martyr to be declared a doctor of the church. And um, he's Turkish in origin, born around 125 AD. And he vigorously defended the incarnation of Jesus and his identity as true God and true man. And very much involved in his instruction that the gospel was for every person, man and woman. There were no elites. And he fought very much against Gnosticism in the church, which is this kind of idea that there is special knowledge available to special groups. Very much, very much against that. Um, and some of one of his, his, his huge tradition for huge love for sacred scripture, the apostolic tradition, and the teachings of the church's shepherds, strongly defended the role of the bishops. He's the saint John who actually gave us the designation, the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's the saint that came up with that break in the books of the Bible, and he also gave us one of the first lists of books of the New Testament. Um, so he's interesting from that point of view. In addition, uh, he's also seen as a saint who bridges the divide between the Eastern and Western churches because he is actually an Eastern saint as he is actually born in Turkey. And um, it's an interesting one as well. He has, um, as I said, he was the he's the first martyr to be declared a doctor of the church. And he's, uh, he's, a and he's been called the doctor of unity, the doctor unitatis by Pope Francis. That's the title that's been given to him. So that's uh, that's what we have, John, for Liturgical Odds and Ends this week. Can I just ask you something there? Um, in terms of saints, for the saints and so on and so forth, um, did you mention to me some time back Father Patrick Payton is on the way? Is there, is there some opening of causes for the, our rosary priest? Yeah, so he, the, the, the the cause of, of Father Patrick Payton is 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 progressing along. I'm not sure at the stage what it, where it's at this at this moment in time, um, but that it has it, it is it is progressing to progress his case to submit it to Rome. To Rome um, in terms of uh, so it was officially opened. The case to canonize him was officially opened by the Bishop of the Archbishop of. Boston, Cardinal O'Malley in 2001, um, but uh, and it has progressed. Now he is an order priest. He's a member of the Rose. I'm trying to think what his congregation is, uh, but he, and of course he's very famous for the Rosary Crusades, the Family Crusade, Rosary Crusades, and huge Marian devotion. And he's so his cause was opened in 2001, and uh, he's titled now the servant of God and his positio uh, he was declared venerable by Pope Francis in 2017 um, so it's, 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 it's moving along so the next thing that's required 
So the next thing that's required then is a miracle for him to be declared blessed. Just so they might be of interest to some of our our, um, our Irish listeners and, of course, some of our American listeners, because I know he did an awful lot of work over there in the United States while he was alive. So at this point in our podcast, we will take time out for a prayer space. Today, I picked a piece of reflective meditation given by Father Flan Lynch, a Capuchin priest. This one is entitled, actually, The Wild Ox's Strength. But it's a beautiful meditation. Uh, and we're going to follow that with a little piece of instrumental music. And this one is entitled The Song of Micah. So join us again in part two of the program where we will speak a little bit about Sunday, the Word of God. We couldn't uh, take it on last week because we spoke about the Week of Christian Unity. But we'll say a few words this week on Sunday, the Word of God. So join us then. Welcome. The title of this meditation, The Wild Ox of Strength, indicates the transforming power of love we will experience. Imagine the power of a wild ox stampeding at full speed, tossing aside the strongest man on earth like a rag doll. The enormous power of the wild ox. This is the kind of superhuman power the writer of Psalm 91 experienced when God gave him a great infusion of love. He tells God, To me you give the wild ox of strength. How miraculous and how very, very inspiring that God would give someone a taste of heaven on earth. The power that this man received was a power of love and generosity, a power of mercy, compassion and patience, a power of resilience, contentment and inner peace. He so overflowed with these gifts that he became unstoppable, absolutely unstoppable. Why was God able to give him such a wealth of gifts? Well, the mind and the heart of this man were wide open. It was this openness and freedom that created the space for God to fill him to overflowing, overflowing with such a great volume of love. And so the great question, what's stopping you and me from having a life-changing experience? Our friend would surely say, create the space by turning to God with all your heart, and that the God of love will happily give you what you need. We find the same beautiful message in Psalm 83. As the Jews go through the bitter valley, they make it a place of springs, walking with ever-growing strength. By turning back to God, these downtrodden Jews created the space for God to transform their lives. From now on, they were able to turn everything to their advantage, especially what was bitter or difficult. And they walked with ever-growing strength because they had connected with the wild ox of strength. We all struggle with the things that make life a bitter valley, a bitter experience. The pandemic has made life very bitter for many people. Other causes of bitterness include pain, suffering and illness, mental health problems and family problems, depression, worry and anxiety 
nor confidence and loneliness, loss of meaning and hope. There's a way of turning our vulnerability into empowerment, the empowerment of the wild ox of strength, which is, of course, the enormous power of God's love and peace. We call this way meditation. And when we meditate daily, preferably twice daily, we connect gradually with the inner power that will transform our lives, no matter how hopeless we might feel. So let us begin our meditation, turning feelings of vulnerability into feelings of empowerment. Close your eyes gently if that's comfortable. Begin to relax gently. Drop your shoulders. Relax your face. Relax your arms and hands. Relax your mind and your body. Breathe gently. Smile a little. You're creating space, sacred space. Be aware of the gentle miracle of Jesus present with you to befriend you. Relax and feel at home with Jesus. Be present to Jesus as you are, in your broken, wounded state, your vulnerable, needy state. Open up your mind and your heart and allow yourself to be loved by Jesus. Relax and surrender, and allow the love of Jesus to flow to every part of you. Feel happy and grateful deep down in your heart. Feel the flow of love filling you to overflowing. Just be happy to be. Feel loved by Jesus, very deeply loved. You are now connected to the divine strength, and it feels like it's the wild ox's strength. Feel very very privileged. 
feel all the pain of bitterness you carry getting smaller and smaller. Just be at one with Jesus in the great bubble of love which surrounds you. Feel all your fears, worries and anxieties melting away in this great bubble of love. Just be aware that your bitter valley is becoming a place of springs, springs of divine love. Notice the deep, gentle peace Jesus is giving you. Notice the joy that goes with the gift of peace. Feel so very grateful. So very grateful. So very grateful. We have now come to the end of our meditation. So we conclude by thanking Jesus for being present to us as a gentle friend. Jesus, we thank you for the wonder of our being and the wonder of every person and the miracle of your presence with us and with every person. If you sometimes feel poorly, or struggle with worries or any other negative, then listen to this meditation morning and evening, or even more often. Thank you.
So welcome back again to the second part of our podcast here on Come and See Inspirations. My name is John Keeley, still joined by Shane, Shane Ambrose. This point of the programme now, we, we're going to say just a few words. You've had a little bit of time to Sunday the Word of God. Now, we know it was celebrated last week, but as we we decided to to speak with our good friend, Father Martin Brown, on uh, the week of Christian unity last week, we said we'd spend some time this week around the Word of God. So we've got a few little offerings, uh, uh, sharings that Shane wants to share with us, and then we've got a little bit of a, um, a podcast that we'd like people to listen to. But in the meantime, Shane, how would you like to maybe just offer a few words to us on Sunday, the Word of God? Yeah, so as you said, John, uh, last Sunday was uh, the Sunday says Sunday, the Word of God. It's, it's, it's set to occur on the third Sunday in Ordinary Times. So that was last, last weekend. Now, um, it's, it's, in one sense, it's, it's almost a redundancy because, of course, every Sunday is a Sunday of the Word of God, you know, um, because it's obviously the Word of God is proclaimed at every Sunday Eucharist. But it was set up by Pope Francis in 2019, um, and he, it's, it's a day to be, the idea is it's, it's a day set aside to be devoted to the study and celebration and spreading of the Word of God. Um, and Pope Francis set out that it's, you know, the relationship you know, it's an, we need to recognize the importance of the relationship between the risen Lord, the community of believers, and, and sacred scripture, because it's essential to who we are as Christians. And I suppose it's a, it's a good, it's a, it's a challenging thing, I think, maybe for Catholics to get their heads around. Um, and particularly Irish Catholics, we don't have a very strong tradition of familiarity with scripture. Um, very many reasons for that, um, but it's not true to say that as you know, some people would like to make out that the Catholic Church is not a biblical church. It very much is a biblical church, um, and you know, as very clearly set out by the by the Church at the Second Vatican Council in a document called De Verbum. But the idea of this one is Pope Francis put it up there to remind us of the central role that the Word of God should play, both in our liturgical life, but also for each one of us in in each one of us individually. Um, it very much focuses on, I suppose, the, the idea of that we gather around the table of the Lord, which is the altar, of course, but to break open the word, but also to break the bread, which is what we're used to, but also to break open the word for each and each one of us. And I suppose it's a reminder to each, to each of us as well that as Catholics, we have a very strong belief and understanding that Christ is present in a special way in the Eucharist, the sort of what is described by the Church as the source and summit of our faith. But sometimes what we all forget is that Christ is just as much present in the Word proclaimed. So in the Word, in the Word of God, the Word proclaimed. And this was brought home to me once. Um, a friend of mine was studying Scripture in Dublin, and their, you know, their Scripture, their Scripture lecture. He turned around and he said to them. If you had the Blessed Sacrament here, where would you have it? And of course, people were saying, of course, it'd be in a special place. You know, it would be, you know, in the ciborium, candles, all the rest of it, not, you know, very reverently looked after and all the rest of it. And he didn't turn around. He said, where is the Bible that you brought today to class? Chances are it's sitting in your bag thrown on the floor. He said, it's the same thing. The Word of God, the Blessed Sacrament, it is the presence of God in our daily lives. And I thought actually it was a very good way of challenging our perceptions on the word of God and the importance of it. And in this regard, actually, our neighbours in 
the Islamic world had kind of teach us a thing or two because for them, the Quran is, is, is held up the same as we would hold up the Blessed Sacrament in terms of its role and its understanding within their faith culture. So, you know, in that regard, it's you know, just an example of how other faiths look at the word in terms of their own particular faith tradition. But bring it back to the Sunday of the Word of God. Um, it's a time when we're, we're supposed to kind of pay greater attention, greater attention to the Word of God and to reflect on it. Um, you know, and it poses some questions for us. I know in some parishes, you know, the question is, do we have a book of the Gospels? Do we carry it in procession? Do we have a proper lectionary? Or is everyone foostering around with a leaflet or bits of paper? You know, the idea is that it, it should be treated with reverence like we would the Blessed Sacrament, you know? Um, you know, and it, it is also very much a cultural thing. I, I know when I worked and lived overseas in different cultures, uh, particularly African cultures, the, the, the procession of the words into the Eucharistic assembly is a big deal. There's singing, there's dancing, there's incense. The carrying of the book of the, the word of the God, the book of the Gospels is a big deal. They reverence the word of the Gospels, um, yeah, the, the book of the Gospels, you know. So that's it's, it's something for us to think about, but also poses the question for us in our domestic churches in terms of how do we treat it and how do we use and pray with scripture as individuals and as family? not something which should be confined just to the formal church building and in this regard uh, it's something which our brethren in the protestant churches have something to teach us because obviously the tradition uh, the sola scriptura tradition in the protestant churches is much is quite strong and the idea the place and the role of scripture in their prayer life would be quite strong as well and it's something you know considering that last week was the week of prayer of christian unity it's something perhaps that we could learn from our, our, our neighbours who happen to be a Protestant as well. Um, but also to stress the importance of it from the point of view that, you know, Eucharistically, when we celebrate, we have it, we have a reading, generally a reading from the Old Testament, a reading from the New Testament, we use a psalm, there's a, there's a gospel. But that isn't the, the beginning and the end of just the role of scripture in our liturgies. Because if you go through our prayers, the Eucharistic prayers, the canons of the Mass, you go through the opening prayers, the collects that we use, they're all suffused with the Psalms and the language of Scripture. And it's our familiarity with that that we need to improve on, that we need to reflect on, that we need to pray about. And that's, that's behind the, the importance of the, the Sunday of the Word of God. This Sunday was also quite important as well in, in Rome because Pope Francis uh, also uh, did something new. So we have in the church what are called various official ministries. And for those of our older listeners, uh, they might remember back in the day, there used to be what were called the four minor orders, which were acolyte, lector, exorcist, and porter, which were steps that generally seminarians were given on their way to ordination to subdeacon, deacon, and ultimately to priesthood. In the 1970s, Pope Francis did an over, or Pope Paul VI did an overhaul and he got rid of what were called the minor orders, but he kept what were called ministries in the church. And a ministry is a formal dedication of a person to do a particular thing. And there were lectors, acolytes, they were the two ministries that were kept. Now, 
in layman's terms, we were doing them anyway. We had readers and acolytes. The job of an acolyte was sometimes being done by our altar servers. And the issue was from the 1970s on, those ministries were reserved to those who were on their way to being ordained for priesthood and reserved to men. Pope Francis is after changing that. And he's after reminding us that the role of lector and acolyte can be done by someone who is baptized by virtue of our royal baptism, as he called it, in his, uh, his change to the canon law. And he opened up these ministries, the formal institution of these ministries, to all baptized laymen and women. And at the same time, he also created a third one, which is catechist. So last Sunday in Rome, Pope Francis, uh, these, he, he, he conferred these ministries on, on, on people and predominantly actually women, to be fair. And it's, it's seen as you know, part of Pope Francis's outre not outreach, I don't like that term, but his recognition of the role of women in the church in a formal sense. Like, we, you know, we have readers, I'm a reader myself in my home parish and we have loads of readers, but this is... By instituting this role, the person is recognized formally in their role by the church. So he did it for both lectors and catechists because he was associating both of those roles very much with the proclamation of the word of God. In an Irish context, we are more familiar with lectors. So those are people that proclaim the word, right? Catechists, not so much. That's something we wouldn't be overly familiar with in an Irish context. But in a context around the world, catechists are hugely important. You come across them, say, for example, in the U.S., where they have parochial schools and uh, Christian formation and, and doctrine is done within the context, and that's done generally by catechists. They have, play an extremely important role in, I came across them in an African context, where catechists might be the only representative of the church that a parish or community might see for months on end. So they would lead liturgy, lay liturgies of the word on, on Sundays, they would prepare children and couples, they prepare children for baptism, they confirmation, they prepare couples for marriage. So, and it, it's an it's a essential role in many countries, particularly where there isn't enough priests. And, you know, they, they, so it's, it's it, the, you know, the role as the ministry of catechist um, that the, they, that as, as, as Pope Francis said, like there are people who are entrusted with a cross uh, to recall their missionary character of the service that they administer. So this is what Pope Francis did on Sunday. He gave each of them a cross, whereas each lector was presented with a copy of the Book of the Gospels. Um, you know, so it's, 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 it, it was a lovely ceremony. I saw some of it myself. Now, it's still very much um, in design, if you like. This was the first ceremony, um, and it's, it's, it's something which is just new. It's a new role. It's a new ceremony. A new liturgy the Pope has ordered to be prepared and it's just it's also but it's important for its value for witness um, and that that is that is the key thing about it and it's drawing on our shared baptism which is the important thing um, you know it's inviting us to recognize that you know these ministries they're different from the ministries or from the ministry that's received through the sacrament of ordination uh, it comes to us from our baptism. And it's for lay, lay persons who possess the age and qualifications um, to be admitted to the ministries of lector and acolyte. And it's very much, I suppose, it's 
important to, to recognize that this is a development out of the Second Vatican Council, uh, in particular recognizing lay people's responsibility for evangelization. Um, their responsibility, their role, and their experience uh, of doing it and recognizing it in a formal sense within the church. So that was just what happened last Sunday, John, in Rome. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what way it happens. It, as I said, it's the, the catechist bit, traditionally not very strong in an Irish context. That may change over the coming years, particularly with the whole debate around the role of the church in education and in schools and faith formation for children. So something we become much more familiar with. Uh, and, and then for the, lect, for the lectors, well, we to see what the bishops do with that. That's something people, lay people in Ireland are particularly very familiar with. Shane, thank you very much, Nick, for that. Um, of course, it's a little hobby horse of my own, having the Word of God available for for uh, members of, uh, of us lay people, uh, especially in our churches and uh, and. Um, I've tried to, and in fact, I do have in our own church here in Ada uh, a small little book at the back of the church where we have the daily readings and also a little reflection. It helps those people to come a little, little bit more familiar with, uh, well, with the Word of God, uh, because a lot of it is is spoken about during the week um, in terms of the readings at Mass. Not everybody can attend Mass, but at least what they can do is they can come into other church, for instance, to the, to the back of the church, just into the porch there, and just flick through um, the pages of each day which have the readings and also reflection. Thanks a lot for that, Shane. Now, what we do just to finish off this particular uh, section, and as I said, we're, it's really devoted to the Sunday of the Word of God, there's this piece that uh, we picked up um, by Bishop uh, Robert Barron, a, a favourite. Back in 2020, um, he spoke uh, on a topic, When God Speaks. It's only about 14 minutes. It's a beautiful piece, which might be ideal, a uh, piece to listen to after Shane's reflection there. And we'll finish off this, uh, this part of a uh, podcast with some music by Music Me. And this one is entitled The Word of, Word of God Speak, Speaks. So let's listen to uh, Bishop Barron and the music and then come back again and join us where we read and reflect on the Word of God for this Sunday. So join us then. Peace be with you. Friends, the church proposes for us this week a marvelous little passage from the 55th chapter of the prophet Isaiah. Here's one of the greatest of Israel's prophets, and the theme of this little passage is the Word of God. So here you've got one of the great speakers of the Word of God discussing precisely the topic of the Word of God. So even though it's a short passage, it's one that packs, I think, quite a punch. Keep in mind that Israel knew itself to be, in this very privileged way, the people to whom God had spoken his word. I mean, they knew that, that truths had been communicated, of course, to many other cultures, but somehow to Israel, uniquely was spoken God's word. And so we listen with great attention to this little passage. Let me read just a section of it. Thus says the Lord, Just as from the heavens the rain and snow come down, and do not return there till they water the earth, making it fertile and fruitful. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. Extraordinary, beautiful. The relevant uh, Hebrew term here, by the way, is dabar. Echoes up and down the Old Testament, the word. Echoed, of course, in the Greek of the New Testament as logos, the word of God. 
One thing I love about that little image of the rain and snow coming down, um, for desert people, for Middle Eastern people, how powerful that was. Now, I, I sent it out here in California a bit. We go through periods of tremendous drought, and then we savor when the rain comes. And we're very attentive to the snowpack up in the mountains because that keeps us you know, fertile during the, the summertime. Well, even more so for a desert people. As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return without watering the earth, making it fruitful, it meant the world to them. So the divine word, Isaiah is saying, has that same power in the spiritual order. But it comes down to a desert place and makes it fruitful. It gives life. It produces something. It's very interesting there, isn't it? Uh, We think of language, in the usual sense, as something derivative and descriptive. What do I mean? Well, it's derived from experience, and it describes experience. So if I were to describe to someone what's happening this morning, I'd say, well, here I am in this studio space and a camera in front of me and lights, and I'm describing what I'm taking in. Okay, language does have that function. But other times, even in our speech, language has a much more creative and productive role. Now, what am I talking about? Suppose someone, even a parent, said something to you when you were a kid that was very cutting and critical. Did that affect you? (laughs) You bet. That produced something in you, something terrible, at a very deep level. might last your whole life long. Or state it more positively, a parent or a friend or a teacher or someone says something that is very affirming and optimistic and and confident to you. That could set a a child on a a path that will change her whole life. You know, what she said to me when I was a little kid, it's because of that that I'm still doing what I'm doing. Sometimes our words affect reality. They do just what's being described here. They, They give life. They make a desert place bloom, right? Or think maybe a somewhat less dramatic example, but you're in a baseball game, right? And the, the fans are cheering, and maybe they're all commenting the way we do at a game. Like, we're, we're describing, and we're commenting. And, but then there's the umpire on the field. And he calls the play. You know, you're out. Well, his language is not just describing. He's not just sharing his point of view. His words change the game. That, that player's got to go sit down, or it's three outs and, and, and the inning's over. The umpire's words are not just descriptive and derivative, they are creative. That's what God's word is like. That's what Isaiah is saying. But now, you know, a fortiori, even in the strongest sense, God's word affects what it says. Go right back to the beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, let there be light, and there was light. God's not saying, oh, by the way, look, there's light. (laughs) I'm describing for you what's out there. No, no. God speaks, and it is. Let the dry land appear, and so it happened. 
Let vegetation cover the earth, and so it was. Let animals teem, let, let things that crawl upon the earth come forth, and so it happened. Don't literalize that language, but it's trying to communicate this very powerful truth that God speaks the world into being. His word makes it what it is. Our words shape reality to a degree they can. Think of the umpire. God's word constitutes reality at its deepest possible level. You know, I, I always think of um, a great sprawling novel, like by, let's say, Dickens or Dostoevsky or Tolstoy, one of these great you know, 19th century novelists. Big thousand pages and plot and all kinds of subplots and a thousand characters and, you know, one of those novels takes you months to read. But isn't it amazing that there's one author, like Dickens, who is utterly the master of every little detail of that story. I mean every character, I mean the plot, I mean every subplot, I mean every sentence, every word, every comma, every semicolon was thought into being by that author. Or think of, you know, the Sistine Chapel ceiling with all of its complexity of design and the number of characters and figures. And, but yet, there's this one mind. Michelangelo, he might have had a few assistants to, you know, mix his colors and that sort of thing. But Michelangelo's mind brought into being that work of art in every nook and cranny. So God continually brings into being, by his great act of speech, the universe in its totality. See, friends, we do not inhabit a chaos. We inhabit a cosmos. And the only way to make sense of that is to posit the existence of this great, intelligent creator who is continually speaking the world into being. Extraordinary. Whenever you feel tempted to say, ah, oh, it's just a, you know, it's a tale told by an idiot, right, in Shakespeare's language. No, that's, that's what the world is not. It's not a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury signifying nothing. No, no. The world in every nook and cranny is like a great novel being written by God who is speaking it into being. You know, a further implication, I've spoken of this before, the sciences depend upon this idea. What's the condition for the possibility of the sciences? Well, the world is intelligible, right? Any scientist has to go out with great confidence to meet a world that's endowed with intelligibility. A pattern, a meaning. If the world's just chaotic, no science would get off the ground. How interesting that every single scientist, no matter what his or her discipline is, must make this mystical assumption that the world is full of pattern, meaning, and intelligibility. Where does that come from? It comes from this ancient idea that God speaks the world into being as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return without watering the earth. So my word goes forth from me and does not return without accomplishing its purpose.
So there's God's creative word. Now think of, of Isaiah himself and his colleagues, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah, all the others. God's prophetic word. Descriptive? Yeah, sometimes it is. They might be describing what's going on at the, in the Israel of their time. But much more importantly, the prophetic word is creative. It's productive. It makes things happen. It did in their own time, and how wonderful, how wonderful that up and down the ages, that word continues to have a transformative power. Think here even of Martin Luther King in our country, calling, as he often did, on Amos the prophet, speaking of God's justice coming down like a great uh, waterfall. I mean, centuries and centuries later, King calls upon the prophetic words of the Bible to effect, indeed, great social change in our country. The prophetic word accomplishes its purpose, not just describing, making things happen. I remember uh, years ago when I was a professor at Mundelein, I would speak to the students about preaching a lot. And I would say, you know, if you're just sharing your own opinions, uh, the people will sense that, and your words won't have a lot of power. But the minute you allow the divine word to speak through you, and you'll know when that's happening, and the people will know when it's happening because it'll cut them to the heart. That's the way it goes with the divine word that accomplishes its purpose. Okay, let me close with this. But with all that in mind, let's take a look at this figure who is not just one more prophet among many, but is the very dabar, the very word, the very logos of the Lord God, made flesh? St. John, in his prologue, consciously calling upon the beginning of Genesis. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And that word became flesh and dwelt among us. What do we know, therefore? We know that Jesus will not simply describe the way things are. Jesus will change the way things are. Watch him now in his ministry. As he preaches, lives change. My son, your sins are forgiven. And by God, they're forgiven. Take up your mat and walk. And he takes up his mat and walks. Little girl, get up, and the dead girl gets up. Lazarus, come out, and the dead man comes out. What Jesus says is, because he's the incarnation of the word that Isaiah is talking about. The night before he died, Jesus took bread and wine from the Passover supper. Over them he said the word, This is my body. This is my blood. Describing a state of affairs, producing a state of affairs. Because what Jesus says is, and that's the ground, everybody, of a Catholic belief in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. It comes from Isaiah 55. It comes from this keen sense that the Word of God never goes forth from him in vain, but rather accomplishes its purpose. Okay, what's the upshot of all this? Let that divine word 
in all of its manifestations, through creation, yes, through the prophets of Israel, in Jesus and his Eucharist, let that prophetic word invade you. Trust me, it will change you. And God bless you. Finding myself at a loss for words And the funny thing is, it's okay The last thing I need is to be heard But to hear what you would sing Welcome back again to the third part of our podcast here on Come and See Inspirations. My name is John Keeley, still joined by Shane Ambrose. And uh, I was certainly uh, informed a lot on what the Pope 
um, instituted there last week in terms of ministries and so on and so forth. And I suppose what we should do uh, um, is to pray about um is to pray for those people who have been initiated in uh, at the moment and also for those who hopefully will be formed in the future. But in the meantime, we'll read and reflect on the Word of God for the fourth Sunday in Ordinary Time. Prior to that, we'll ask Shane to pray this prayer before reading and reflecting on Scripture. Thanks, Shane. Lord, we thank you for putting us in the presence of your Word, which you inspired in your prophets. May we approach this Word reverently, attentively and humbly. May we not despise this word, but receive all it has to say to us. We know that our hearts are closed, often incapable of comprehending the simplicity of your word. Send your spirit to us, so that receiving the word in truth and simplicity, our lives may be transformed by it. Let us not be resistant, Lord. May your word penetrate us like a two-edged sword. May our hearts be open to it. Then let our eyes be closed and our minds wander. But may we give ourselves entirely to this listing. We ask this Father in union with Mary, who used to recite the Psalms through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thanks for that, Shane. So the Gospel for today, the fourth Sunday in Ordinary Time, is taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verse 21 to 30. Jesus began to speak in the synagogue. This text is being filled today, even as you listen. And he won the approval of all, and they were astonished by the gracious words that came from his lips. They said, This is Joseph's son, surely. But he replied, No doubt you'll quote me by saying, Physician, heal yourself. And tell me, when we heard all that happened in Capernaum, do the same here in your own countryside. And he went on, I tell you solemnly, no prophet is ever accepted in his own country. There were many widows in Israel, I can assure you, in Elijah's day, when heaven remained shut for three years and six months, and a great famine raged throughout the land. But Elijah was sent to was not sent to any one of these. He was sent to a widow of Zerophath, a Sidonian town. And in the prophet Elisha's time, there were many lepers in Israel, but none of these were cured except the Syrian, Nainam. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They sprang to their feet and hustled him out of town. And they, took him up, and they took him up to the brow of the hill where the town was built on, intending to throw him down the cliff. But he slipped away through the crowd and walked away. So that's the Gospel for this week. Shane, you might share a few thoughts with us, please, on that? Yeah, so just, to, it's, I, don't have a, I don't have a whole lot in terms of this week um, just to share with people. I suppose for me, this Gospel, I always think this is a very Irish Gospel this particular one from Luke. Um, and a very parochial gospel as well. I think we can, if we're honest with ourselves, I think we can really sympathize with what happens here. Um, and it's not just Irish thing, it's, it's human nature. Um, you know, so to be fair, I, I don't want to be seen to be dissing ourselves, but this, I, you know, the idea of being challenged by somebody that we know, you know, someone local and, you know, the whole thing about who the hell does he think he is telling us what to do? We know where he came from. We know every spit and breed generation of them. And he's getting above his station. You know, very much, you know, it, we know it. We can associate it. If, if You know, one thing we say on this program every week is that the scripture isn't something that happened 2,000 years ago. It's something that speaks to us now. And it's, this is an event in the Gospel of Luke, which I think we can associate with. But the question is, 
if you put yourself into that gospel, who are you? Which character are you in that account today? And the problem is, for many of us, we'd probably be the crowd, the mob, kind of not overly impressed, not too happy with what someone was saying to us and the prophets that arise in our midst today and what they're saying to us and how they challenge us. I suppose the question is, first of all, who are those prophets and what are they challenging us on? You know, who, who is it that is, is there and is challenging us in terms of, 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 of what we're hearing and what we're seeing and what we're doing? And, you know, it's an interesting one as well, because at start of the gospel, Jesus is popular. You know, um, he won the approval of all. By the end of the gospel, like three pericopes later, they want to kill him. You know, it's, it's something, you know, what is it that changes their attitude? And it's, I suppose, it's very much a case of, you know, asking ourselves, um, why, what was it, you know, you know, I think maybe it would be fair to say that there was a moment of grace there. There was an opportunity for people to encounter the divine, but they didn't like what they were hearing necessarily. And that sometimes is, sometimes we don't like what we hear. We don't like, we don't like to be challenged. We don't like to be made feel uncomfortable. Um, you know, and perhaps the ch- implications of the good news well, was just too challenging for them coming from one of their own, you know. And there's that risk for us that we don't always recognize God's word and how it can come to us in unexpected packaging, you know, unexpected ways and ways that we don't expect. Um, you know, we can sometimes have expectations of how certain people should live and react and do and say. We pigeonhole people. Um, and I suppose the question is, you know, do we shoot down opinion? You know, are our hearts open? And do we recognize the modern day prophets who are bringing the dream of God to fruition amongst us? You know, Jesus' message of openness and inclusion, if you like, he's almost his political manifesto from last Sunday's gospel, was almost too much for those who heard him. And I suppose the question for us is, do we welcome all? You know, and how does that gospel message of inclusion challenge me this Sunday morning? Shane, thanks for that. As you alluded there, Lexia Divina, as we often spoke about it, it does ask us to place ourselves in the Gospel reading and our own reflecting of the same, and we don't always like it. Today I was drawn to the line, and they hustled him out of town. We could ask ourselves, how many times do we hustle Jesus out of town? When we ignore his teachings and do our own thing, and as you said, we don't like to be told we're doing something wrong. When we shut out the voice of the Holy Spirit when we're prompted to do something wrong. Today reminded today we're reminded that Jesus is hustled out of our own lives and in society and locally, in our own parishes maybe, in our own family, but also in ourselves. We we don't like sometimes what we hear, we want to shut out, we want to get him out of town. So today maybe let's all try to commit ourselves to a new a new relationship with Jesus and continue to follow the path of life that he wants us to leave. Not easy sometimes, but that's what it's all about. Anyway, with that, we'll come to the end of our podcast. Uh, thanks, Shane, for, for sharing those uh, few thoughts with us on the Gospel and also early on on uh, Sunday, the Word of God. 
And I picked a piece of music I haven't played for some time, and it just came to me today because there's poor old Jesus, and he'd be shoved out of town, and they were going to throw, throw him over a cliff. And I thought, isn't it nice to have friends? So I'm going to play out a piece of music that came to me by Charlie Ransmer, and this is entitled, I'm Your Forever Friend. So next week for myself and Shane, where I think, Shane, next week, are we going to go through the world, the, the year in review? We're going to try. So next yeah. week, okay, so every January. Now, next week or the week after, whatever. We'll, 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 we'll be into February next week, but usually myself and John, John and I, sorry, John and I, uh, we usually uh, try to do a kind of a review, you know, like they do for year for New Year's. New Year's, we get the sports year in review, we get the political year in review, and usually we try to do the church year in review as well. So we'll try that next week. It's a bit later than usual. Um, it might not be as comprehensive as always, but we'll try. That's all we can do. In the meantime, enjoy the week, and we'll talk to you again next week. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Everybody needs a little help sometimes No one stands alone Makes no difference if you're just a child like me Or a king upon a throne For there are no exceptions we all stand in the line Everybody needs a friend Let me tell you of mine He's my forever friend My leave me never friend Darkest night to rainbows end is my forever friend. Even when I turn away, he cares for me. His love no one can shake. Even as I walk away, He's by my side With every breath I take And sometimes I forget him My halo fails to shine Sometimes I'm not his friend But he is always mine My forever friend My leave me never friend From darkest night To rainbow's end He's my forever friend If you still don't know the one I'm talking of I think it's time you knew Long ago and far away Upon a cross 
my friend died for you. So if you'd like to meet him and don't know what to do, ask my friend into your heart and he'll be your friend too. He's my forever friend. I leave me never friend From darkest night to rainbow's end He's my forever friend He's my forever friend